everybody, this is Chad Harms, the pastor of Creekside Bible Church. Thanks for taking some time to listen to my latest sermon, a sermon about being a conqueror. It will play in just a minute, but before it does, I want to say Happy New Year. As we move into 2021, maybe one of your goals is to read the Bible more this year. There's something that we do as a church that might help. We are constantly running Bible plans on the YouVersion app for people to read together. If you're interested in being a part of one of those, you can simply go to creekside.me and click on the yellow button that says YouVersion in order to connect with us on one of those plans. I believe that God's word can transform your life. And if it is one of your goals to read it more this year, I think it's a great goal. And we'd love to be able to help with that. So go to creekside.me and click on that yellow button that says version. Again, thanks for taking some time to listen today. I hope that this sermon will help you to learn and live more fully for the glory of God. Morning, everybody. My name's Chad. I'm the pastor of this church. I know you all know that, that are here with me today. But for those of you online, that's who I am. And... Uh, one thing I think that's important to tell you before I start this sermon is that uh, I really, I connect with it in certain ways and not so much in other ways personally, but the way I connect with it is, uh, or that I don't connect with it so much, is that I've, I've always been a rule follower, and much of this sermon is about disliking rules, uh, and I've always been, my dad's over here, he would attest to that, that I've been pretty good at following rules through the years. Uh, he didn't have to discipline me very frequently, uh, although I did have a memory uh, just this week because I, I heard some uh, uh, some 90s rap and it reminded me of a time when my dad went out to back my car up out of the driveway and there was a filthy CD in my younger days and he comes back and he looks at me and holds up the CD and says, no more. Those were the only words and uh, never listened to that CD again. But I've always been a pretty good rule follower. However, I am not somebody who likes rules. I, I actually dislike rules a lot. And that's how I connect with what we're going to see in this passage today. I dislike rules, and, and on top of disliking rules, I, I especially dislike rules that, that feel needless or arbitrary. An example of that is I graduated from high school, and I don't remember what my curfew was when I graduated from high school, but, but then I was going to Corbin University, and at, at Corbin University, they had an earlier curfew than I had had at home, and, and there was, I, so I didn't live on campus because, because of that single rule, which you think, who cares? You know, you got to come home an hour earlier. It was, just, it was just me not being okay with a rule that seemed stupid that basically caused me to live at home for an extra year. I, I couldn't handle having rules that seemed needless. And, and I think that all of us in our own ways struggle with just a desire, maybe this is good sometimes, but we have a desire within us to push back against rules. As I was studying for this sermon all week, this other song, not one of the filthy rap songs, um, but this song from my childhood, it was a remake in my childhood, uh, kept coming into my head over and over and over. You know the song Signs? I like that song a lot. Sign, sign, everywhere there's a sign. Blocking out the scenery, breaking my mind. Do this, don't do that. Can't you read the sign? And you know that song, Nobody? Okay, people are, are giving me a little bit of head nods. Yes, I, I loved the song as a kid. And then, and then it gets like, and that's all right, you know, blocking out the scenery, we don't like that. But then it like this, it gets like weirdly intense. Like the lyrics are like, wait, we're jumping. It's like this. 
And the sign said anybody caught trespassing will be shot on sight. So I jumped the fence and I yelled at the house, hey, what gives you the right to put up a fence to keep me out, but to keep mother nature in? If God were here, he'd tell it to your face, man, you're some kind of sinner. It's like, wow, just for a no trespassing sign. I mean, the lyrics, you know, there's other lyrics that are almost as crazy in the other verses. But I think that song points out our tendency to really not like when people tell us what to do. We as, as humans, it's human nature, I think we really struggle when people tell us what to do, especially when we don't agree with the things that they are telling us to do or to not do. And this is exactly what I think Paul answers in the book of Romans for us in the passage we're going to look at today. The question becomes, is the law good? And I think we all wrestle with that, especially for people who aren't Christians, but even those of us that are Christians, we wrestle with the idea like, are God's rules, his regulations, his laws specifically, are they good? And, and a lot of people, especially apart from God, they, they want to push back against God's rules and they want to say no to that question. And then those of us who are Christians and have loved God maybe for a long time, we've learned to like God's rules, but we still struggle to follow them and to obey the things God's asked us to do or to not do. And, and I think somewhere inside of us is because we do, in fact, question whether or not God's rules are actually good. I think a lot of them we like, right? Like we, we can see that they make sense. But some of them, it's like, well, I don't really know if that's important. And Paul answers at least some of that in, in what we're going to look at today. Paul is going to show us that God's law is good, even though, and we'll talk about this in just a second, even though he said a whole bunch of things that seem really negative about God's law to this point in the book of Romans. Now, before we look at that, just the one thing I need to say before that is that this, what we're going to look at today, Romans 7, 7 through 25, it, it sits obviously in between Romans 7, 1 through 6 and, and Romans 8. Uh, and you have this kind of weird giant parenthetical statement that I think only Paul could pull off. Like when I include, I'm a big, I'm actually a big parentheses guy. If you've ever gotten an email from me, you may have recognized this already. Like I love parenthetical statements, but mine are like, three words. Like, you know, I'm trying to get things in there. I even have parentheticals in my sermon. Um, but Paul is like, hey, I'm going to give you this 18 verses or whatever that really is just me answering a question that I know comes up because of what happens, what I said in 7, 1 through 6. And before I get to kind of where that extends to in Romans 8. Really, Romans 7, 1 through 6 and Romans 8 kind of go together. And then Paul pauses and says, here's this parenthetical thought that I need to give to you before I moved on. And, and it sits between this. Uh, Paul says, you have been released from the law. And then he's going to go on to say all this beautiful stuff about what we've become in Christ and, and, and our relationship to God through Christ and how much God loves us and it's seen in Christ. And we have all this great stuff in Romans 8. But before that, he's like, needs to answer this question about the law. Like, is it good or is it bad? That's pretty much the question. Is it good or bad? And that's really important given, I said all this last week, but it bears repeating today. Uh, for those of you who didn't hear it and even those of you that did hear it, uh, Paul has said a whole bunch of stuff about the law that, that especially Jewish readers in the first century, the book of Romans, they would have been like, you can't say that. That's feels blasphemous. That feels wrong. And even us now who are like, you know, Bible readers, we're like, 
whew, he's pushing some kind of line that I'm not really comfortable with by saying all these things about the law that God has given. And I said last week in Romans, I said Romans in Psalms 19 and 119, the law is talked about in these glowing terms and, and it's like sweeter than honey and it's you know the way of life and all of this great stuff. But Paul in the book of Romans so far has said these things about the law. The law reveals sin, Romans 3.20. The law condemns sinners, Romans 3.19. The law defines sin as transgression, Romans 4.15 and 5.13. The law brings wrath, Romans 4.15. The law even increased transgression, Romans 5.20. And the law has no power to save. And that's basically throughout the book of Romans. First few chapters really get to that, you know, over and over and over again. And so you just like, well, is the law bad then? I mean, given everything that Paul has said, all of that we must ask the question that Paul is going to ask in 7-7, is the law bad? And here's how he, say it, how he says it. What shall we say then? Is the law sinful? And then he says, certainly not. Is the law sinful? Is the law bad? Is the law bad considering everything that Paul has said? And now he said, hey, if you're a Christian, you've been released from the law. Does that mean that the law, this, this thing that God gave people that they were excited about, the Jewish people living before Christ were excited about, they were blessed by it, they were defined by it in many ways, they, they considered it one of the key reasons that they were different and better in a lot of ways than every other nation in the world? Is this thing bad? Is it bad? And then what follows is this very lengthy thing, this passage, that feels autobiographical, mainly because Paul says, I, 46 times in the verses. So you think, wow, that really sounds autobiographical. He says, I, 46 times. It's like I and I and I and I and I. And here's, this was the surprise of my week, actually, uh, which means it wasn't too bad of a week, right? But this was the surprise of my week. It, it was to find that there's actually much debate about whether or not this is autobiographical or if Paul is using the rhetorical device known as impersonation. We all know impersonation and we mainly know it from one genre, right? Comedy. That's when we usually impersonate people. We impersonate people. We laugh at them. I dated this girl and, and her family, I hated this. This was one of the worst parts about dating this girl, her family, they would all, while they're sitting around the dinner table, they would impersonate, basically make fun of each other's laughs. And then you're like, I'm never laughing in front of this family again. Like they would just just impersonate each other. And, And then the rest of them were laughing. They were comfortable. And I was like, oh, just don't laugh at it because you're next. Like, but this is how we know impersonation, right? Like Robin Williams does imperson, did impersonations. Like this is how we know impersonation. But in the first century Greco Roman world, Impersonation was not primarily, I'm sure they use it that way too, but wasn't primarily a comedy device. It was a rhetorical device in order to teach or to uh, argue for a certain viewpoint. And, and so a lot of people, including, and this is interesting, this is just you know maybe more information you want, but, it, but it's interesting if nothing else. Basically, every church father, as they say, Greek-speaking scholars that lived near the time of Christ, every one of them, every single one that we have recordings from, writings from, they all believed here that Paul was using impersonation and he wasn't being autobiographical, that he's not telling his story in Romans 7, 7 through 25. Now, 
On the other side of that, after Augustine came and he taught, then all of the reformers, who you know, we think pretty highly of, all of the reformers actually thought that Paul was being autobiographical in what follows Romans 7, 7, uh, 8 through 25. They all believed that he was being autobiographical. And, and so is this, and it's actually, this is what makes this hard. A lot of times I can pose these questions in my preaching and then say, but you know what? It doesn't really matter to how we understand this passage of scripture. It totally matters to how we understand this passage of scripture, whether we make this autobiographical or whether we say this is Paul using impersonation. Uh, and, and so let me, I just, I, I don't know if this is, if you're not bored, let me just give you the two sides, because I've only heard this preached one way, autobiographical, my whole life. That's just how I've read this, how I've understood this passage, but I'm not sure it's right. And so here's the arguments, and, and, and hopefully you've stuck with me, because there's going to be a, an actual point to your life in this sermon, but, it, it, but it's so important to just see why it's difficult if you're going to understand, I think, you know, the point, or at least understand this passage of Scripture. So here's on the, on the non Oh, by the way, uh, if, if he's impersonating somebody, the question becomes, who is he impersonating? That's also important. People don't even know that. They argue about that. I'm like, what am I supposed to do one week to study this? And we got guys who spend years probably studying this passage, and they don't know who, if he's impersonating or not impersonating, and who he's impersonating, if he is impersonating somebody. But here's your options. Adam, like the first guy ever created, uh, Old Testament Jews, Jews in general, or people apart from Christ. So kind of overall picture non-Christians. And here would be the argument for, you know, a non-Christian kind of impersonation if Paul is using impersonation here. First, all of those Greek-speaking, you know, dead guys, they all thought it was, that it was impersonation. And, and they all thought it was about non-Christians, okay? So, so that's impersonating a non-Christian. Obviously, if Paul's being autobiographical, he is a Christian. So it would be that way. So here's another one. Some phrases would be absolutely, in this passage, shocking if it was used to describe Christians, especially given what, what Paul has said in Romans 1 through 7, 6. Like so many things he says in this passage, you, it would be like, how can you describe a Christian or yourself that way, given all of these other things that you've said so far? And you'll see that when we read it. The context of contrast between Romans 7 and 8 really seems to make this about non-Christians. In Romans 7, Paul is kind of talking about uh, people under the law. In Romans 8, he gives us this wonderful, I love, I'm so looking forward to preaching Romans 8. Romans 7 is just difficult, but Romans 8, like it's all about how great it is to be a Christian. Like what a beautiful thing to preach on, right? And, and, and this would make more sense contrasting that. Here's the struggle as a non-Christian versus here's, here's what it is like to be a Christian. There's no Holy Spirit or talk of Christ in Romans 7, 7 through 25. That would be strange as if you're describing a Christian, if you're impersonating a Christian, or if Paul's being autobiographical. That would be strange, right? To never talk about Jesus until the very end or talk about the Holy Spirit's work in your life, especially given that Romans 8 is driven by the Holy Spirit's presence in our lives. It's spirit, spirit, spirit over and over for the whole chapter. But then on the Christian side, we have all these other good arguments. And I hope I'm not boring you too much, but, but they're worth seeing because you're going to have to make a choice when you read this. If you're a Bible reading person, you're reading in the book of Romans, you have to decide these things in order to understand this passage. So Augustine and the, and the reformers believed that this was about a Christian, especially Paul describing his life. 
This is what makes it so difficult. There are phrases here that would be absolutely crazy to use when describing a non-Christian. And so you have crazy phrases for a Christian, crazy phrases for a non-Christian. It almost seems like two people. Verses 7 through 13 are past tense and 14 through 25 are present tense. And so it almost seems to describe a conversion experience. Like Paul goes from past tense to present tense. Uh, And so maybe some of that is in there. And then the whole thing kind of falls within the context of the sanctification of the believer. Remember, we've talked about, if you've been with us, justification, which is that God declares us righteous or he declares us innocent. And sanctification is the process then because we've been declared innocent, we've been declared free from sin, then we grow and we move away from sin and we move into greater innocence and holiness. And this falls within that context in the book of Romans that we are to grow in our Christian faith. So you go, what in the world is, why is Chad telling me this, right? And, and two reasons. One, one is that it's just almost impossible to look at this passage and be, I think, open and genuine and honest about it as a preacher without telling you that it's just incredibly difficult to know where Paul is coming from. Uh, reason two I want you to read this passage. Go home. This is homework right here. Leave here or you're already at home. Get your Bible out when I'm done. Just write when I end and they're done singing. Get your Bible out and then read this passage and and just think through it in these lenses. Is this about Christians or non-Christians? And at least you'll explore the Bible in a way that I think is more scholarly and, and, and probably more valuable to your life to come to it with a with an eye towards actually understanding the authorial intent versus just reading it and guessing what it might mean for you on this particular day or whatever it might be. And and the third reason that that I think I I, I say all this to you and give you this difficult part of this passage of scripture is simply uh, that it begs the question for all of us, and we should do this in our understanding of scripture. What is Paul's overall point? Because if I can't give you an honest, I, I actually think this way or this way, and I'm 50-50 right now, so I'm really 50-50 on this. Uh, I, I, if I can't just know that, if I don't have an opinion, then I have to do my best to just go, what is, what is the point here? And contextually, I've already given you, I think, really the overall point that Paul is trying to get at. He's asking the question, is the law sinful or not? And with that question in mind, no matter if we see it as impersonation or autobiographical or whether we see it as a non-Christian or a Christian, we must remember that Paul is answering a question and we find the answer to his question In this passage, is the law good or not? Is the law sinful or is it not? Is it, is this, is this thing that God gave us that we call the law, primarily the Old Testament law, is it good or bad? Is it good or bad? Hudson says bad. My son says bad. And I think Hudson, my son, that Paul is going to say something different in this passage of scripture. I think that he's going to show us that it is good. And so in the midst of all of it, we come back to what, what do we know? Paul is asking a question, is the law sinful? There's a similar question in verse 13. And everything he says here, no matter how he is doing it, it's to answer that question. 
And I think he's going to tell us that the law is not bad despite all of the negative things that he said. Here, listen to verses 7 through 13. Now they've set it up so big, right? Listen to this. Nevertheless, I would not have known what sin was had it not been for the law. For I would not have known what coveting really was if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, produced in me every kind of coveting. For apart from the law, sin was dead. Once I was alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin sprang to life and I died. I found that the very commandment that was intended to bring life actually brought death. For sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, deceived me and through the commandment put me to death. So then, listen to this, the law is holy and the commandment is holy, righteous and good. Did that which is good then become death to me? By no means. Nevertheless, in order that sin might be recognized as sin, it used what is good to bring about my death so that through the commandment, sin might become utterly sinful. So no matter how Paul is approaching this, we start to see some of these things come through that demonstrate that Paul is saying that the law is in fact good. Is the law sinful? No, the law is not sinful. The law is holy, as Paul says. Listen to these phrases. Now, some of it, if you just, yeah, I had to look a little deeper, right? Because when you first read, it's like, well, the law came and sin connected and death came. And, and almost in verse 13, it's like Paul recognizes that, that he sounds a little wishy-washy. Like, well, they're not clear on what I'm getting at here. So let me dive in a little deeper. But when you look at it and you really pay attention to what Paul's saying, you begin to see, you begin to see that Paul is showing us that the law is good. Listen to this. I would not have known what sin was had it not been for the law. This is an incredibly important line. I think one of the key lines in this whole passage of scripture. Paul, Paul saying that, you know, a non-Christian or me, you know, whoever it might be, they wouldn't know what sin was if it wasn't for the law. And sometimes we complain about the restrictions of God's rules for our lives. And I think some people, that's actually their excuse for not becoming Christians because they don't want to have to follow the rules that God has given for Christians to follow. And if you are a Christian, you, you hope, I mean, you better be trying to live this way because you're a Jesus follower, but sometimes you don't like it. Sometimes you just wish you could skirt around it and, you know, maybe play around with sin as we've talked about a couple of times in, in this study through the book of Romans. But it's so important to, to just think about what Paul has said here, that sin is identified by the law. And therefore, Paul is in some ways pointing us to the fact that without the law, we would not understand our need for a savior. Without God saying, here's what is good and bad, we would not know that we do bad. And if we didn't know we did bad, then we wouldn't know we need Jesus who came to die for our badness, who came to die for our sins. It is a really cruel thing to do to punish people when they never knew there were rules at all. But our God is not a cruel God. He is a good God. And so therefore, he said, let me show you 
Let me show you the rules so that you can see where you have broken them and understand that you need me. And then he didn't just say, sorry, that there's, you're, you're going to get punished now. Now you know the rules, you messed up, whatever. He said, look, I'm going to do something. And he came, Jesus came in order that we might be saved from the consequences of breaking the law. Now go back if you've been with us. Remember that Paul said sin existed before the law. So it wasn't as though people just became sinners because God said, here's rules. People were already sinners. And then God said, here's the rules. It shows me that God wanted us to see how much we needed him. It wasn't that he gave us these rules to just restrict us or make our lives worse or whatever we think about these rules. He sent these rules so that in part, this is what Paul's getting at, we could see that we needed a savior and then he showed us, he showed us that that Savior is Jesus by giving us the gospel stories. And the people who lived with Jesus saw it up close, but we get to see it through his word too. Now there's a couple other things. These are, these are my parentheticals. Um, I told you I love them. As we talk about the goodness of the law and how it points us to the Savior, our Savior, Jesus, I also want to point out two other things about the law that I think really connect with what Paul has said here. And the first is, is simply that this sin is that which goes against the nature of God. Uh, sin is not this arbitrary idea. It's not as though God just made these rules and said, don't lie, don't murder, don't do these things just because I don't want you to do them. They go against the very character and nature of our creator. If God has put a law into place, it is in large part because it, it is not in line, uh, breaking it is not in line with who he is in his very nature. So when God says, do not lie, that's because God is a truth-telling being. He tells us the truth. When God says, do not murder, well, that's because God is a life giver and not a killer, right? I mean, he is the one who has given us life. And so sin goes against the very nature of God. And subsequently, I think this is very much connected to that, sin and people, this is not going to be widely accepted, I think. Here in this room it will be, but out there, this is not a widely accepted idea. But sin is bad for us. I think we get that all wrong. I think that we think that God just puts these laws into place and you know maybe they go against his nature, but he's just trying to restrict us or hold us down or prevent us from having the most fun that we can possibly have. But the laws that exist that have been given by God, the law given by God was given because it is against his nature, but also because it is for our good. It's for our good because it points us to our need for a savior, but it's for our good because if we were to obey God's law perfectly, then our lives would be much better. Can I prove this? No. But I have so much anecdotal evidence that suggests this is true, that if you were to sit with me, I could talk all day about how times in my own life, I've done what God did not want me to do, and it sure seemed okay and good and right at the time, but I got a year later down the line or whatever, and I really saw how just doing what God wanted me to do at the beginning would have been much better. I can tell you stories from lots of other people's lives. We see it all around us. In fact, I think uh, there are so many problems in our world that we can look at. People that struggle, that are broken, uh, that are in pain, that are suffering, that are living on the streets. And we can look at their lives and we could go back and say, you know, there are so many laws that if they just would have listened to what God said in the first place, they would never have ended up here. 
God gave us his laws not arbitrarily, but because they, they, they help us to live in light of God's nature and they are for our good. But most importantly, again, because they show us that while they are for our good, we actually don't fulfill them. And so there is sin and death in the world and we need a savior. He says, sin produced in me every kind of coveting. Bob Utley, my new favorite pastor, I talk about him every week. Now go listen to some Bob Utley sermons, man. Uh, I just say that preaching, man, it makes me feel like preaching has just gotten worse. Uh, and I'm a part of that in many ways. I, I, he inspires me to be a better preacher. But he said, there's something in us that rebels against any authority. It's called sin. Augustine, who took this as autobiographical, he actually tells this story from his life in one of his books. And he, he talks about how there's, there's this fruit on a tree and he steals it. And like not in the wild, it's like somebody's fruit. And he, he steals it despite the fact that, that he has better fruit at home, uh, that his trees are better or whatever, that he has no need for the fruit, that he's not particularly hungry. He doesn't really care about this fruit. There's no reason for him to take this fruit. And then he says, was it possible to take pleasure in what was illicit for no other reason than that it was not allowed? And he sees this thing within himself that seems to be true and seems to be what Paul is getting at, that we, when told not to do something, this is where I started, right? We have a tendency to want to push back against that thing. My kids have this book that we love. It's one of the greatest children's books, in my opinion, especially younger children, called Don't Push the Button. Don't push the button. It's this little monster named Larry. I can almost do it by heart right now, but I'm not going to. Uh, but the opening book is, Hi, I'm Larry. Don't push the button. And there's this button on the other page, and there's this purple, I think he's purple at the beginning, right, Hazel? Yep. There's this purple. He turns. So you, you push the button, he turns yellow. You push it again, he gets polka dots. You push it again as you turn the pages. Then there's a bunch of Larrys, and then you have to undo all this damage that you... You have to shake the book to get rid of all the extra Larrys. We've read this book a lot of times. And, and the whole thing is predicated on the fact, I think, that children, when told not to push a button, are going to want to push the button, right? It is human nature. If there was a book called Don't Push the Button and all of us did not have sin inside of us, we'd be like, all right. I guess that's the end of the book. <laughs> like, just that would be it. The book wouldn't work, but every kid and, and adult, they just want to push the button. And so when Paul says that covenant sprang sin to life within us, he's talking about how it showed us just how sinful we are. And in some ways, it elevated our desire to covet when we are not Christians because we just don't want people to tell us what to do. He says that this, the very commandment, the commandments of God, the laws of God, they were intended to bring life. Leviticus 18.5 says, keep my decrees and laws for the person who obeys them will live by them. I am the Lord, but we do not do that. And so Paul says, did that which is good then become death to me? By no means. Paul wants you to know that, that, that it wasn't the law that brought the death. It was the sin that made us want to reject the law that brought death. The sinful nature inside of us that made us want to push the button when we were told not to. That's what brought death into the world. The law exists so that sin, notice this, this is what Paul says, sin might be recognized as sin. And sin might become utterly sinful. 
The law did not produce sin in us. It showed us what sin was and should. And this only works once we've come into a relationship with Christ, I think. It shows us how utterly sinful sin is. We can't just kind of sin and be like, I'm okay with it. We have to look at the law. We have to look at what God's called us to do and see just how far we've rejected, how much we've rejected it. As I say that, I think that's true for Christians and non-Christians. If you're not a Christian, I think it's really important that you open the Bible and you start to read it because when you do, I know you'll try to say, well, there's no sin, there's no bad, you know, whatever. What's right for me is right for me, what's wrong for me. But when you see the standard that God has set, you can't help but see how far you've missed that standard, how far away from that standard you are. And when you understand that, then it begs the question, what do I do to be forgiven? Jesus is the answer. I do think it's like a sign. I have a sign. We printed a sign today. Keep out. Uh, my kids and I were watching, uh, I don't know if you saw that video of the, of the guy saving his puppy from the alligator. Did anybody see that video that went viral? It was a small alligator. Um, but, uh, but he jumps into this pond to save this little dog. I, I, we have a new puppy and He's not very likable yet. Uh, and and I, I've told Beckett, like, you, any alligator comes at you, psh, like, good luck, buddy. <laughs> That's the end of it. Now, I did tell my kids I'd go in for them. Uh, but because of that, we Googled, like, I don't know if you also saw this, but there was the giant alligator walking around on the golf course not long ago. And apparently this alligator is normal size, but it was walking high point, which is abnormal for alligators. And basically, it's like a push-up for an alligator. And so the thing looks like, the size of this building that we're in right now. I mean, it is huge. And so we Googled like big alligators and we were looking them up. And this guy is walking around in this park. And, and apparently, I, Florida, I don't know what's going on in Florida. Florida is always just seems like crazy. But there's this park where you just walk on like nature trails, like Graham's Oak Park in Wilsonville. But on the side of the road, there's alligators. Like, just like, like, right here's an alligator, and you're walking, and he comes across a sign that says, Keep out danger. And the guy's like, You know what? Not today. I'm not going to go in there, but you know that I really want to. It just, to me, it's like so, such a picture of the law, right? Like, God gives us this big keep out signs. And, and, and going in, means death for us. It means absolutely that we're going to die. And so there's these big keep out signs. And, and, and yet, because there's a keep out sign, something in us wants to go in and do what we're not supposed to do, even though, even though we can see the perils of doing those things. And the world apart from Christ absolutely can see the perils of the things that we as Christians declare as sin. And yet they see the sign and they say, well, God's not going to hold me down. That sign doesn't apply to me. I'll do whatever I want. And all they're doing is, all you're doing is moving yourself into more danger. So the keep out sign, I mean, according to Paul, it exists so that we can see danger. It exists so that we know when we go out of bounds, when we've crossed into dangerous territory. And great thing written at the bottom of God's keep out sign is a big thing that says, hey, you've crossed over into scary, scary territory here. You're about to get chomped by a giant alligator, but I can save you if you will place your faith in me. That's what Paul begins saying about the law. That's what Paul is saying about the law. And he continues, and this is a long one, so try to stay with me. Read it on the screens. Uh, 
He says, we know that the law is spiritual, but I am unspiritual. Sold as a slave to sin. I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate to do, and if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good. As it is, it is no longer I myself who do it, but it is sin living in me. For I know that the good itself does not dwell, the good itself does not dwell in me, that is, in my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. Now, pause right there. I read it quickly in part because I want you to see the confusing nature of this passage of Scripture. It's even hard to read, right? Basically, Paul has said so far, I want to do good, whether he's being autobiographical or using impersonation. I want to do good, but I do bad. All right, I want to do good, but I do bad. The things I don't want to do, I do, and the things I do want to do, I don't do. That's what Paul is saying. And he says, for I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do, this I keep doing. Now, if I do what I do not want to do, it is no longer I who do it, but it is sin living in me that does it. So I find this law at work in me. Although I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being, I delight in God's law, but I see another work, law at work in me, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within me. So then, I myself, in my mind, am a slave to God's law, but in my sinful nature, a slave to the law of sin. Now that, that is difficult, right? What in the world is he saying? And the only way I've ever heard this talked about or preached is basically, and the only way I've ever read this until this week is basically, as a Christian, I struggle to not sin, even though I've come to a place where I don't want to anymore. And I think that's a good reading. And if Paul's being autobiographical here, then man, he is really opening himself up like, in a way that he never does anywhere else in all of the New Testament, all of his writings that we have you know, in our Bibles. Uh, he, he opens himself up in a way that... that that he's never done anywhere else. And he says, look, as a Christian, I don't want to sin anymore, but I do. I... But remember the question, right? And this is why it's so important to understand that there's a tension here and we don't really know what he's saying. What's the question? Is the law good or bad? That's the question. Is the law good or bad? Is the law sinful? That's the question Paul is seeking to answer here. And the question then becomes, how does this section answer that question? And I think Paul's overall point is simply this. When I recognize that there is a good, but I can't do it, or when I recognize that certain things are bad, but I do them anyway, then I am, in essence, declaring in my soul that God's law is, in fact, good. Just because I break it, the fact that I don't want to break it, shows that God's law is good. Now, this, you know, most easily connects to Christians. We, as Christians, we've talked a lot about sin here. We've talked about how there's no place for sin in the Christian life, but we've also said we still do it. But I think a big thing for us who are Christians is that when we sin, we don't like it. We're sad about it. We regret it. Hopefully soon, we don't like that we sin. And... and and that's true for Christians, and it shows us that the law is good, even though we don't break it, even though the law you know, showed us what sin was, even though we wanted to react negatively to it, and we still do this sometimes as Christians because of our, our flesh, we still want to push against it and, and disobey just because we want to disobey. But I think this is still true for, for people who aren't Christians too. I think if you're not a Christian, you, you sense some of this. There are things in your life, there are lots of areas in your life where you fall short of doing even what you sense to be good. You fall short of doing what is right, even if it's just in your own eyes. And I think in some ways then you have to ask, well, why is that? 
What is that about morality that, that even though maybe you don't believe anything, maybe you're an atheist, you still go, I know I don't stack up morally sometimes. What is that? And the answer that I would give you, that Paul would give you, well, that's because in some ways God's law is written on your hearts. He said that way at the beginning of the book of Romans. And when you recognize that you haven't lived up to it and you feel bad about it, or when you just simply say, I should, if you've ever said, I should have, then you are recognizing the goodness of God's law, both written and written on your hearts. Paul says the law is spiritual, but I'm unspiritual. He says, and the problem is not with the law, the problem is with me. He says, for I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. We know that this tension is universal. Paul is saying we can recognize good and bad. And for those of us who have ever read the Bible, we see that it is the perfect, it is the perfect description of what is good and bad. And yet we do not live it out. But when we don't live it out and we feel bad or we say I should have, then we are saying that the law is good and I am the one who isn't good. That's what Paul is getting at here. The law, yes, of course the law is good because you, because you know you feel bad when you break it. Even if you don't know it, you know you feel bad when you lied to your best friend. You feel bad about that. And so therefore, you are declaring the law is good, but you, you are not. And when you say that, you know that you need a Savior. And if you're a Christian, you have a Savior. And you should be excited about that. I want to point out one more phrase here, waging, waging war. He says that, this sinful kind of nature inside of us is waging war. As I, as I hold up this sign and think about going places that we shouldn't, it's not a walk in a park. It's not how the life is. There is a war being waged for our soul and that, you know, like the good angel and the bad angel is how we sometimes picture it. But that bad angel, man, that war is being waged and saying, just go in, just go in, just go in, just go in, just go in. And until you recognize that you are in a war for your soul, I think you're going to continue to sin. And so here's the big question, I think, for all of us. So you've gathered the law is good. I am a sinner. What does that say about my life? How should I live differently? And here's, here's the end. Here's the end, and it's so important. Here's what Paul either impersonates or does himself. He says in verses 24 and 25, What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? Thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. Mr. Utley says, God help me is the autobiography of my life. Paul, in these last two verses, what he calls us to do is to, to cry out to God in desperation because of the sin in our lives. If you're not a Christian, that means looking at Jesus. No, it just says, God, I need a savior. That's what it looks like. God, I am a sinner who needs a savior. God, I recognize that I can't live the way I want to live. I need a savior. God, I recognize that there are many things I should have done or shouldn't have done. I have regrets and failures. I have guilt in my life and I need you to do something about it. Cry out to God. And we know because of what Paul's already said in the book of Romans that you cry out to God and, and the answer is going to be accept Jesus as your savior. You place your faith in Jesus because Jesus came to die for your sins. He never broke the law. He was sinless, perfect, and he died for our sins. And so embrace that gift. Cry out to God and embrace that gift. But for Christians, I think the answer is this. You have sin in your life. What do you do with it? 
A lot of times we just work harder. We try more. We sit in our guilt. The answer's at the end. Cry out to God. You got to cry out to God. You have to be desperate for God to change your behavior. We do not move out of sin simply by trying harder. Paul is showing that. Well, I'm trying, I'm trying, I'm trying, and I'm failing, I'm failing, I'm failing. We must cry out in desperation to our God. Now, here's, here's what stands in the way of that, though. Just to bring it all back together, and then I'm finished. Here's what stands in the way of all that. We will not cry out in desperation to God to remove the sin from our lives, whether for salvation or for sanctification. We will not do that while we are sitting around with the excuse that God's laws are purposeless or bad. While we are twisting God's laws and saying, that doesn't apply to me, that was written for the first century, Uh, I don't like that one, God just wants me to be happy, uh, there's a modern world and the Bible needs to shift with times. There's tons of interpretation errors. Uh, you know, that one doesn't apply to me. It only applies to, you know, first century readers. There's so many ways we, we just look at the law and we go, it's bad, right? It's bad. And if, if you're the Old Testament law, if you're like, how much of that do I have to apply? Listen to last week's sermon. But like, there's so many ways that we twist and we mess with and we look at what God's called us to do and called us not to do. And we say, we don't say it this clearly if we're Christians, but we say it in our souls. But if you're not a Christian, you might say it this outright. It's bad. And as long as you're pretending that God's law is bad, you will never feel the need to cry out to God in desperation to remove that bad, the sin from your life. You must recognize what Paul is saying here. The law is good, I am bad. And so I need God to do an incredible work in my life. God's law was not given to hold you down. It was given to point to you, point you to your need for a savior. And so I hope that you, you, all of us, me too, uh, I'll, I'll make it autobiographical for my life today. I think that all of us, no matter how little or big the sin seems, we need to recognize God's law is good and we need to cry out in desperation for him to remove the sin in our lives.